Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. We are going to start in Matthew 9.35 as we are jumping into Matthew chapter 10 that we will be in for the next few weeks. And as we are diving into Matthew 10, uh, I want you to kind of, uh, what I'm calling kingdom on mission. And this is going to be Jesus uh, commissioning the 12 disciples. He is sending them out on mission. And it's not very different from how we are sent out on mission as well. Now, we are going to be spending some time in here because there are, in chapter 10, there is a lot of cultural and context things that we need to understand and why Jesus is saying uh, the things that he's saying here. But then when we get into Matthew 28 and what we know is the Great Commission, uh, why these are different things and how that plays into the timeline uh, and how this plays into the context. So we're going to be spending a couple weeks in chapter 10. But something I love about chapter 10, and we'll read the text in a minute, but basically from 9.35 through 38, and back a couple months ago, Cam Stewart uh, preached through that last section that we finished up, Matthew chapter 9, and I really love it because Jesus, uh, well, let's just, let's just read the text because it's going to make more sense. Matthew 9.35 through 38. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And that's why we uh, try to encourage people to set alarms at 9.38 a.m. and p.m. as a reminder of Matthew 9.38, to pray for the laborers, to pray for the harvest and the laborers that are being sent out into the harvest. And I love this section because Jesus is, and I think we can see this in our own lives quite a bit, and we say, hey, let's pray for the missionaries, right? And everyone's like, yes, like, and, and so we pray, and then we say, hey, and let's pray for the lost people in our community. And we're like, yes, that's really important. We'll pray for the lost people in our community, the people that we are surrounded with, the people that we interact with on a, a daily, weekly, monthly um, week or month or whatever it is, the people that we are constantly interacting with. That They are lost, and they need, they need the Lord, so we'll pray for them, yes. And, this is, and let's pray for the people that are going to reach those people in our community. And they're like, absolutely, right? We're going to pray for the laborers as they are being sent out. And we all agree with that. And that's why I love chapter 10. And let's go ahead and jump into it. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses uh, through the beginning of verse 5. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the name of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed them. In the beginning of verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. We'll get into the instructions next week. But I love when you put the end of chapter 9 and the chapter 10 because he's saying, hey, we got to pray for the lost people. And they're like, yes. And we got to pray for the missionaries, yes. And we got to pray for those who are going to go out and win souls to Christ. And they're like, yes. And then chapter 10 starts and he goes, and you're it. 
You are the laborers that I'm sending out into the harvest, and it's true with you and I as well. Because we, we pray, and we, we pray for the missionaries, we pray for people in our community, we pray that they would know Christ, we pray for the people that are going to be sent out, and this is God saying, and now it's you. I am a sovereign God who has placed you exactly where I knew you needed to be to reach the people that I'm going to put in contact with you. Now, at the time, none of the disciples worked from home because of a recent pandemic. And the same is true today. If we are in a place where we are not reaching people, if we are not going to find people to tell them about Jesus, we are commissioned to go. And Jesus, as we see, he will send them out into these different communities to go with the good news of the gospel. Now, one of the overarching themes we're going to be talking about as well over the next couple weeks is this topic of discipleship, uh, the importance of discipleship. Um, we've spent, if you've spent any time here at Hope Church, this is something hopefully you've heard many, many, many times. Um, if we look around the world, uh, gathering like this uh, in a lot of instances is not normal. In fact, you would never advertise where your church is meeting. You would never use microphones. There would be no musical instruments. There'd be nobody singing loudly. You wouldn't want anybody to know that you're there because it could mean death or imprisonment or loss of whatever. And that's how so many of our brothers and sisters around the world get together and worship. They have to meet in groups of three or four. Um, in Iran, you would go in and they would immediately take your cell phone and take the battery out, put it in the bathtub, and then cover them all up with blankets just in case there's still a microphone on. And they can only meet with six or seven, and they will be killed if they are caught. And Iran has the fastest growing church in the world. So that's why we put such a huge emphasis on discipleship, because these closed countries, they grow not because of their worship team. They grow not because of an incredible uh, preacher who, who brings forth the word. They grow because of discipleship. And if you're looking for what a healthy church is, a healthy church is something where discipleship, and this is my opinion, but I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible, discipleship is emphasized over and over and over again. So with that being said, we need a very clear definition of what discipleship is if we're all going to be on the same page. And I've spent a lot of time in my life at different churches who you could ask different people, what is discipleship? And you will get a different answer for everyone you talk to. You can talk to the staff of a church and get a different answer. And so uh, when we moved down here and we went through this uh, training called the Cypress Project, one of the things that Neil McGlowan would say is you need to know what the bullseye on the target is so that everybody can shoot for it. And so he said, and so for us at Hope Church, it's very simple, and we're going to put it up on the slide so that you can also repeat this. Discipleship is helping someone move one step closer in the relationship with God. That's what discipleship is put very, very simply. And so in the chart there at the bottom, we have this cross, and the cross represents when somebody comes to know Christ. When Jesus becomes the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life and they confess their sins to him and they are welcomed into his family. So what we would do is in our minds, and this isn't something that we go around with a chart and check off. You can if you want. It might make some conversations awkward. But when you meet somebody on this side, they do not know Christ as their Savior yet. They do not have a relationship 
with God, whether it's because they've rejected it or they just don't know about it. On this side, we would call that aspect of discipleship evangelism. That is just bringing the good news of the gospel. The gospel is literally the good news that Jesus Christ defeated sin and defeated death, and we no longer have to pay the consequences of our sin when we call out to him. And so where do we meet? When we meet people, where are they? Are they somebody who hates anything to do with God or church? Well, we probably put them over on the far side. So how do I get them one step closer? How do I build a relationship with them so that whatever past hurt or past belief system, I'm representing Jesus in a way that maybe they've never seen before? Now, after they come to know Christ, on the other side, um, we would call that what we've been talking about, pursuing holiness. Uh, pursuing Christ-likeness. How are we uh, being iron sharpening iron and helping each other grow? Let's not forget, we are all sinful human beings with different experiences, different belief systems, different um, political views, different ways on doing school. Different, I mean, we can go all through the differences that are just in this room alone. So how do we come together and demonstrate unity to demonstrate the love and unity that we can only be found in Christ? How do we come together and then help each other grow? How do we speak the truth to each other in love so that we're helping our brothers and sisters grow in Christ? And that is the discipleship aspect of how we help each other pursue holiness. Does that make sense? Everybody on the same page? Fantastic. So that's what we have here is part of this discipleship process um, that has took me a very, very long time to understand is going out and bombing, going out and falling flat on your face, going out and messing up, going out and finding out how much you just don't know. That's part of the discipleship process. So when we have the 12 disciples here and where they are at in this timeline, this is not the group of people that you would think, all-star team, all-star team of missionaries. These guys are going to kill it. You would go, this is the biggest group of nobodies, the last people that should ever be sent out to represent Jesus that ever existed. Matthew, the tax collector, for one. Notice that he mentions his job title when he gives himself in the list. Matthew, the tax collector. Let's be clear. And then there's also this other guy, Simon. Not Simon called P Peter. Simon the zealot. Turn zealot into the word terrorist. That's where that comes from. Simon, who belonged to a group of people who thought it was their mission to kill Romans, trying to lure Romans away from other Romans to stab them in back alleys. They were literally, it's where the word, they, they um, carried daggers in their cloak. Given the opportunity, they would kill a Roman or they would kill a government official given the opportunity. And that uh, word for dagger in the cloak is where we get the word for terrorist. True story. So we have quite the group of guys here. We have some people that were disciples of John the Baptist before they followed Jesus. We have other people that you'd never thought that you would see. But the most trusted disciple among the disciples, the guy that they said, that's the guy that should hold on to the money, that's the guy that we trust with our funding, that was Judas Iscariot, who would go on to betray Jesus. So this is a ragtag group. We think of them as the 12 disciples and that one bad guy. These were four fishermen you have a terrorist, you have a tax collector. The tax collector and the terrorist alone, he, the, Simon would have killed Matthew given the opportunity in the streets. So we have this beautiful picture of unity in Christ and being sent out on mission together. And at this point, we, everyone in this room, has a massive advantage 
Because we would see this and say, yeah, but they're with Jesus. Like, they have a huge advantage over us. At this point, they're still following the Old Testament laws and principles and the religious leaders. Jesus has yet to die for our sins and defeat death by raising again, bringing in this new way, this new operating system of faith because of what Jesus did. So you here have access to that. And as powerful as God was during creation is still as powerful as God is now and God will always be. So when God and uh, Jesus tells his disciples later on, hey, by the way, I'm leaving you. Uh, I'm going to be returning to heaven, but I'm sending my helper who is going to work in you and you're going to do greater things than I could do. That helper uh, is the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit that guided them that he'll talk about in chapter 10 that would go on to guide all of these disciples and change their lives is the same Holy Spirit that is alive and active in you if you know Christ. So I just want to be on the same page historically speaking. God hasn't lost any power ever. He is still alive and active. His word is powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He has given us everything that we need, as Romans tells us, to be more than conquerors in him. And the mission that he is sending out his disciples on here is the same mission that you and I are sent out on every day. So I'm going to ask four questions, but also keep that in the back of your mind. These guys went out, and it didn't go well. They came back realizing how much more they needed to learn from Jesus. That's discipleship. So when we are being sent out, just know you're not always going to do well. You're going to mess up. Things aren't going to go as how you plan. And that should cause us to run back to the feet of Jesus. I should run back to him, seeking him. So question number one, do you see with the eyes of Jesus? When it comes to you living on mission, when it comes to you going out and sharing the gospel with other people in your lives that because of God's sovereignty, only you have access to, if you will, do you see other people with the eyes of Jesus? Are you filled with love and compassion when you look at crowds of people? I mentioned this a couple years ago when we were in the pandemic and there was all these protests and riots and everybody seemed angry that you saw on television. When you saw the groups of people, were you filled with love and compassion for them or did you think they got what was coming to them because they disagreed with you? Were you filled with love and compassion? Did you see them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, people that needed Christ, and ask yourself, what can I do to demonstrate Christ's love and compassion to them? Or did you say, get them, they're what's the problem? Do you see people with the eyes of Jesus? Do you have a love for Jesus that is so strong that you are filled with the love that only he can show for other people? Or... In 1 Corinthians 13, it goes through, this is what love is. And this isn't just a marriage chapter. That is a chapter that is so deep in how we are to love other people, how we are to love each other. And one of those things, and I've mentioned this before, is love does not keep a record of wrongs. So when you look at other people, do you write them off because at some point they wronged you? At some point they disagreed with you in some way, and therefore they are not fit for you to love them? Or do you see with the eyes 
of Jesus? Does the love and compassion that Jesus has demonstrated, does it flow through what I call every compartment of your life? Because we have like this family compartment, right? Spouse compartment, uh, I have kids compartment, I have parents compartment, I have siblings compartment. Like that's our family compartment. And then we have the people we barely know compartment. And those people, the people at the grocery giveaway, for instance, they're so easy to love because I don't know them. They've never wronged me. So they're easy to love and have compassion for. They're in need. They tell you what they need prayer for, and we pray for them. My family, especially that one Cowboys fan brother, I'm going to have a harder time loving him. We have a long history together. There's been a lot of wrongs done. By the way, a lot of my brothers listen to this. This is all hypothetical. (laughs) We have a work compartment. And different people at work might frustrate us, so we avoid them at all costs. So does our love and compassion flow through in our work compartment? Does the love and compassion of Christ flow through every compartment of our life so that Jesus is always being shown? And when we mess up, are we willing to admit it? Do we see people with the eyes of Jesus? Question number two. Do you see the need for Jesus? Do you see the need for for Jesus. As I said, everyone that you encounter on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, whatever it is, they all need Jesus. How do I know that? Because I need Jesus every day. Because you need Jesus every day. Everyone that you encounter needs Jesus. They need to know what it is to be loved like how only Jesus can love. They need to know what it is to be cared for as how only Jesus can care for us. They need to know what it is when they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They need to know the good shepherd. They need to know that perfect shepherd who wants to welcome them in and care for them, as Psalm 23 tells us. Everyone that we encounter is looking for the good shepherd. And so for us, living on mission, our mission is to bring Jesus to others, to represent Jesus. We've used the term ambassador, representative, that when we're part of his kingdom, we are now a representative of that kingdom wherever we live, learn, work, and play. And so how are we demonstrating to other people that they need Jesus, or do we actually understand that they need Jesus? Do, they, do we fully understand the mission that we are on? I've used the example before of if you're in the military and you're at battle and your commanding officer says, hey, we have to go up and around this bend here and it's going to get ugly. So when I say go, we go. Do you raise your hand and say, no, I'm not going. And then another time he's like, hey, guys, everything, we're in peacetime and so we're going to go up around this bend and there's a Sunday bar and we're going to go get that. And you're like, no. Either way, you're disobeying a direct command from an officer above you. And so when Jesus tells us to go and be on mission, what is our response to him? Do we understand what living on mission is? Uh, J.D. Greer says, God did not come up with a mission for his church as much as he formed a church for his mission. If a church is not engaging in mission, it really has no point in existing. Uh, when we kind of came up with our vision and mission for Hope Church, we said Hope Church exists 
to glorify God, build his kingdom, and fulfill the great commission to go and make disciples. We put the wording like that because Hope Church exists too, because the moment that Hope Church loses those, any of one of those three things, we no longer function as a church. It's Hope Social Club. And so how do we maintain being a church as a church, a unified people from different backgrounds and different races and different experiences coming together to to demonstrate the unity of Christ as we live on mission? So understanding the why of the mission is so important, and the understanding is people need the Lord. People need the Lord. I need the Lord. As Mark Turner said last week, if you haven't listened to that message, I highly, highly encourage you to. We must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I read a couple weeks ago, I think I read, if it was one of you that told me, I'm sorry that it's not a, you're not a book. I honestly can't remember where I heard it, but it was simply, we listen to ourselves all day long. Maybe you have an inner monologue that like runs in your head, Uh, Some people don't, some people do. I have like an inner sitcom that's running constantly in my head and really is not good because I'll find myself smiling at times where you're not supposed to be smiling whatsoever. (laughs) We all have this inner voice that's telling us, sometimes it tells us we're not good enough, we're not smart enough. Uh, It tells us all sorts of things and we listen to it constantly. And some of us have years and years and years of, of listening to this voice or what I call this phantom in our head that's always telling us more, more. That's always telling us that we have to do more, that we have to work harder. And what I heard was, so stop listening to yourself and start preaching to yourself. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. That voice can be defeated by God and by his word. And so instead of listening to yourself, start preaching to yourself. Start preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Why? Because people need the Lord because I need the Lord, because you need the Lord. And the third question I have is kind of goes hand in hand with question two, and that's this. Have you experienced the answer? If you see the need for Jesus, have you yourself experienced the answer? Have you yourself experienced Jesus? Here's why. The things that you love, the things that you are passionate about, you tell other people. The things that you really love doing, the things that you really care for, you tell people. It's how you normally make friend groups is based around one of your passions or desires. And so we communicate all the time. And a couple years ago at a college I worked at, they asked the question, what is this person known for? And my name came up. And you know what I was known for? He is a diehard Yankees fan. At the time, I took like, yes, yes, I am. That's a great way. Is that really what you want to be known for being passionate about? And what you, as a child of God, and at the time somebody in leadership, is that really what I wanted to make sure was communicated about me, was that I was a Yankees fan? So what is with you? If we were to take a group of people that don't know the Lord, that you are in communication with regularly and say, hey, what is this person passionate about? Would you want to find out the answer or not? So I want to just take a time here and ask yourself, like, what would they say? Just in your own head, right where you are, think through, what would the people say you're passionate about, that you, your number one desire in life is? 
One of the sayings we try to repeat regularly as we preach is worship is a way of life. Worship is actually how you, how you live. So what does that phrase mean to you? What does that phrase mean to you that if worship is a way of life, how does your life throughout the week demonstrate how you worship God? Because when we experience Jesus, when we humbly come before him and understand who we are and who he is, it should completely change our life every day. It should completely be the focus and the desire of our heart. I love the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Is that your mentality or is it Jesus paid it all and man is he lucky he got me? And it's not a joke. Sometimes we live life. I know I'm very guilty of this. We can live life thinking, wow, Jesus must be so impressed with me. Look at what I did. Or do we, can we humble ourselves in the gospel understanding who we are and understanding who God is and that we are put here to glorify him and everything that we do is for his glory and not our own? And do we live that in such a way, is that so meaningful to us that people can look at you in the community and say, I need what they have. I, I don't know what it is, but I need whatever that is. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who's one of my favorite people, he uh, passed away several years ago, very, very old age. Uh, I was able to hear him speak a couple times, love his books. Uh, and he was very, very cut and dry, like he didn't mince words. But he said, if you are going to bore people, don't bore them with the gospel. Bore them with calculus, bore them with earth science, bore them with world history, but it is a sin to bore people with the gospel. If we believe the gospel and it has affected our life, how can we not tell everyone we encounter about it? That a creator God sent his perfect son to die for a sinner like me. It doesn't make sense. Do we really stand in awe of that? Uh, one of my, so I was a pastor's kid and I spent my entire life not listening to my dad's messages and being a distraction to anybody else in there. And unfortunately my dad uh, stopped being a pastor when I was 16 and I didn't really start following Christ till I was 18. But I remember the one time I heard him preach, and I can remember a couple things he said, but I remember he was preaching and he said at the end of his message, he said, if you're not sure what to tell somebody about Jesus, close your eyes. Picture yourself kneeling at the foot of the cross. Look up and then tell people what you see. Do we do that? How do you view Jesus? How do you view Jesus, especially as we're coming up to Easter and we're going to see crosses and you start seeing all of these things? When you close your eyes and you see a perfect son of God, unrecognizable as a man because of the beating that he took and the blood that he is shedding, dying in the most shameful way, what does that mean to you? Mark Turner said last week, he said, if, when you get to heaven and if you were to be asked, why should I let you in, if your answer starts with I or me, you are wrong. It's because of everything that Jesus did. 
because Jesus accomplished it all. Jesus paid the price. Sin had left a crimson stain on me as a sinner. He washed it white as snow with his blood. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced what it is to know Christ? Have you experienced all that he has done for you and the love that he demonstrated to you? Because if you've experienced that answer, you won't be able to stay quiet about it, and it is definitely not boring. Question number four. What is holding you back? What is holding you back from living on mission? What is holding you back from sharing Jesus with other people? You talked about seeing people like Jesus, seeing people with the eyes of Jesus. Do you see the need for Jesus? Have you experienced Jesus? So what is holding you back? Uh, one of the biggest reasons people don't live on mission, besides what we've already talked about, is that we, myself, very, very much included, we don't think we are good enough, uh, we are scared of messing up, scared of falling flat on our face, uh, we are scared of, what if they don't like me? Or what will they think of me? And so, again, I want to take a moment and think about who Jesus is talking to that he is sending out on mission. Again, part of discipleship is going. Part of discipleship is stepping out and trying. Uh, in that QR code you should have at the bottom of that, there is a list of the disciples and basically just one sentence descriptions of them. And one of the questions we want to ask in community group this week is, what disciple do you relate to the most? What disciple stands out to you the most? So Peter just says is a businessman who is regularly in a leadership position. Me and Peter have a lot in common. We constantly say things we wish we didn't. We say things at the wrong time. We speak very quickly without thinking. Um, we put our, a lot of times we find ourselves in leadership positions and we act like we know what we're doing, but in reality, we have no clue what we're doing. And so Peter is the first on the list. He was kind of viewed as like second in command of the disciples. Um, Andrew, on the other hand, um, a lot of times the way your personality is, you're always very jealous of somebody else's personality. And Andrew is that way for me. Andrew was uh, a disciple of John the Baptist. Um, Andrew, and I love, every time you see him in Scripture, there's not much said about him. But every time he's mentioned, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. The boy with the loaves and the fish, Andrew says, and Andrew brought him to Jesus. Uh, when they're in Acts and they're all praying in the room and they're all like, God, what do you want to do? Uh, and, they're, and all of a sudden, like, Andrew just shows up with some Greek-speaking Gentiles. He's like, hey, we just need to bring them to Jesus. They want to see Jesus. Every time you see Andrew, and I always get, like, emotional about it, he's just gently bringing people to Jesus. That's it. And historically speaking, and if you want a really great book that breaks down all the disciples, what we know about them biblically, what we know about them historically, and then kind of like what was legend that went on afterwards, I can give that recommendation to you afterwards, I just can't remember it right now. But that's what he pointed out was, historically, Andrew ended up, they, they think he ended up by the Black Sea, 
um, and he was starting churches up there. Um, they think they have records of him being in like what is now Ireland, England, and Scotland. Um, and then at one point, he was mar- almost all of these men were martyred for their faith. But Andrew, so little is known about him, but all we know about him is he brought people to Jesus. You go through um, James, son of Zebedee, who left a, successfully, a success, ah, left a successful family business to follow Jesus, but was the first apostle martyred. John, his brother, who had a fiery temper, but also a profound love for God. And you see these changes in, in these disciples as well. Peter literally chopped the dude's ear off in the garden trying to protect Jesus. Later, he writes a book saying, hey, endure persecution well. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is to try you. And he ends up being crucified upside down. And you go through all of these disciples and what they were once known for, but yet how Jesus changed their lives. Well, this is them at the beginning, being sent out on mission. So again, I encourage you to have that. You're going to talk about it in community groups at length. Which disciple do you find yourself most like? Community group leaders, let me know if you find a Judas Iscariot. Just something we'd like to keep an eye on. Uh, I actually heard um, a man that I just have a lot of respect for, who again passed away several years ago, uh, named George Tice, and he was uh, preaching at a church I was at in Indianapolis, and he preached a message called "The Gospel of um, Judas," and it was one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard in my life. So I don't make light of that at all. So what is holding you back? What is holding you back? If Jesus felt comfortable sending these 12 guys out long before they became the apostles who would change the world, they were here, and they were being sent out. So what is keeping you from obeying living on mission? I'm glad you asked, because we're going to answer it the same way we're going to be answering a lot of things. Uh, That's the second time we've had Mark Turner back last week to to talk about the four G's of the gospel, and it's something that Tim Chester puts in almost, um, well, I know he puts it in Everyday Church, and he puts it in You Can Change, his two different books, but I want to go over them again, and we're trying to make these as memorable as possible, because something that we are told to do throughout the entire New Testament is to speak the truth to each other in love. The truth is God's word, and so we want to make these very available. We want to make these, uh, the things that flow off your tongue when you're talking to people here, when you're talking to people in the community, and that is the four G's of the gospel, so I want to just go through them. Again, write them down, take pictures. They're also on that soap guide, that QR code. Number one, God is great, so we do not have to be in control. Understand that God uses everything that happens to work out His good in our lives. Uh, Romans 8, 26 through 39, uh, he talks about that. Everything happens for a purpose. It's God's purpose. But he also says in that passage that you are conquerors, no more than conquerors, with Jesus Christ. So God is great. We do not have to be in control. We can relax and rest in the truth and in His care. So when it comes to living on mission, just remember God is great. We don't have to control the outcome. Um, we don't, a lot of times we go into situations and we want to some way control the outcome of it. But God is in control, and He is sovereign, and He tells us to go out, and so we can go out knowing that God is great, that we don't have to be in control. Number two, God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. Worrying about what other people will think is crippling. 
But God says in Proverbs 29, 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in God is kept safe. When we recognize God as the glorious one and live for his approval, we can relax. Why? Because he sent his spirit so that he can guide us. When we get tired and frustrated and exhausted and and upset, it's not because we're living in the spirit, it's because we're trying to do things on our own power. Number three, God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. Uh, The psalmist reminds us, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 1611. We get into trouble when we think something or someone other than God is going to satisfy us. It won't. Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is all we need. And so when it comes to trying to find those, those questions of what will other people think of me or, or what if they don't like me, that should be telling you whose approval you are living for. Are you obeying God or are you just trying to make the people around you happy? And number four, God is gracious. So we don't have to prove ourselves. Why do we feel like we have to win the approval of others? We don't. If Jesus has made us acceptable before God, and he has, what's left to prove? Who are you trying to impress? Who's running your life? What are the voices in your head telling you of who you should try to make happy other than please God? Again, this sounds exhausting, and we see this as a list of, oh man, I gotta do all these things. But I love in in the beginning of Matthew 10, it says, Jesus gave them power over evil spirits. He gave them, uh, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. That same Jesus who is calling you to go out and live on mission has given you power through the Holy Spirit to do what he has told you to do. This list shouldn't be exhausting or tiring to look at. This should be unbelievable joy coming out of you, that all the things we work so hard to do have already been accomplished, and we can rest and and find peace when we enter into that rest that only Jesus can provide. Again, that same power that they had, God hasn't lost power. That same power that he gave to the disciples, the same power that the early fathers, the church fathers, and the church believers had is the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you if you know him. He is not of this world, but he gave us power through his Holy Spirit to be able to conquer or be more than conquerors. The fear of not being in control, the fear of what others think, trying to find happiness or comfort in things that are not God, and trying to please the phantom of our lives. The world is looking for the answer to all these things. If you know Jesus, you have the answer. So what does it look like played out in your life? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity we have to come to your word. That you did not just give us a bunch of commands and then become a distant God 
to a people who are trying to work their way into your favor. But Lord, you are a loving God who saw that there was nothing that we could do to be able to gain salvation. And so you sent your perfect son to come to earth, to live a perfect life, and then to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin onto himself. That he shed his blood and took our sins to the grave. And Lord, we are so thankful that he defeated death and rose again. And that we can have new life in him. Lord, I pray for all of us this evening, Lord, that we would be able to rest in this truth. Lord, I pray for anyone that is here this evening who does not know you, Lord, that tonight they would call out to you, knowing that you are the only answer. Lord, I pray for those of us who do know you, Lord, that your word is powerful, your spirit is powerful, Lord, that you would work in our lives, that you would help us to continue to grow into Christ-likeness, not for our glory, but all things for your glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.